You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon and text this afternoon, which will be from the Word of God as it's summarized in Lord's Day 12 concerning the name Christ of our Lord, the Son of God. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3 and read that in connection with it. Verses 13 through 17 about the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we understand to be His anointing with the Spirit, His visible public anointing. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now we'll turn to Acts chapter 10. We'll read the verses 23 through 48. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent out, or when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. And now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on him, on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll read the whole Lord's Day together, but it will be question and answer 31 that will have our attention this afternoon. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing, so that I may as prophet confess his name, as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Lord's Day 12 explains that name of Christ, the name that appears in our confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed, it notes that there are actually two important elements of confessing this name, Christ. The first is that the Son of God is called the Christ. He is the Anointed. And the second one, is that we are called after him. He is called Christ. And as we share in him by the Holy Spirit, appointed also by the Father, we are called Christians. Well, because there is so much in God's Word about our Messiah, our Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, And so much about our calling as Christians, we'll divide this one into two parts, and this afternoon we'll look at the first part, namely the name of our Lord, which is Christ. Now you might suppose that, having announced this to you, that this week is going to be the impractical week, and and next time when we talk about Christian, that's where things will get practical that today we're going to talk about Christ and everything will remain sort of up in the air, and then only when we talk about our calling as Christians will it really land, will it really come down, will it really touch the ground, and we'll see how this works out for us. Well, may that not be true. May that not be true. May the name and may the person of our Savior and his status as Christ, as Messiah, never be impractical. It will be our goal to see how practical this is for our lives, that this encompasses our whole life as Christians, that we have a Messiah 
that we have a Christ, the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is not the Christ in some abstract, distant way. He's not a king in the same way that Elizabeth is a queen, Queen Elizabeth. Distant, apart from us, hard to relate with. No, the Lord Jesus is a Christ, a king, a savior who is close, who is near, and whose work relates in every way to our Christian life. It is our life. The same goes not only for his kingship, but also his priesthood and his prophethood. He is a complete, he is a comprehensive, and he is a connected savior. He is the Christ. And so our theme this afternoon is that Jesus is the Christ. Therefore, our salvation is complete. Our salvation as that which encompasses our whole life, both now and eternally, is complete. Because He is the Christ. What does it mean that He is the Christ? Well, He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. As the Lord's Day 12 explains this. Because Jesus is the Christ, therefore... Our salvation is complete. So this week we come to the the name of Christ. Two weeks ago we considered the name of Jesus. That is, that He is the Savior. Specifically, the Savior who saves us from our sin. We'll see that this idea of the Lord as Savior and also how His, His person and His work is connected to to sin and our sinfulness. This also comes up when we deal with Him as Christ. But first, we have to understand, well, what does this mean? What is this name Christ all about? We have to understand it on the the roadmap of, of all of Scripture. If you were to look in the Old Testament, you wouldn't find the word Christ. What you would find there is the word Messiah. Messiah, that's the Hebrew word Messiah, and it means anointed or anointed one. Now, if we translate that word into the the New Testament, we move from Hebrew in the Old Testament to Greek in the New Testament, then we come from the word Messiah to the word Christ. So Christ is exactly the same thing as Messiah, and both of them mean anointed or anointed one. Okay. What does that anointing refer to? Well, that anointing refers to primarily, simply, anointing with oil. One who was anointed would generally be anointed with oil. They would have oil poured on their head. And they would be installed by that act to a specific office. Okay? Anointing with oil on the head. What does that oil symbolize? Well, the anointing oil symbolized the giving of the Holy Spirit to the person who had been anointed for their task. They had received by that action of of anointing that was the visible symbol of the invisible Spirit coming upon them and empowering them for their task. We can see this clearly if we go to Isaiah chapter 61. Why don't you turn there in your Bibles with me? We'll spend some time in that chapter because it will also open up for us the office of our Lord Jesus Christ as prophet. 
Isaiah 61, verse 1, page 1,157 of your pew Bibles. You see there, right in that first chapter, it explains what happens with the anointing. When the prophet says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and so on. So the prophet Isaiah is saying, I have been anointed by the Lord, and therefore the Spirit of God is upon me. Now he doesn't say what that anointing is. Was he anointed with oil? Probably. But what that anointing symbolizes is the coming of the Spirit on the prophet. The visible display and confirmation that God was at work. Well, we'll stick with this chapter, but we should know that in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and following, after the Lord Jesus had been baptized, had been baptized, water had been been poured on his head, he had in fact been dunked into the water, he had been baptized and the Holy Spirit, right, had come upon him, he had been anointed. Well, the Lord Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth, having been baptized, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah to this very verse, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. And he reads it. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. And he continues to read that passage. And then he announces to everyone, Today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one to whom this was ultimately pointing. Yes, Isaiah said it, but the Lord Jesus is the ultimate one, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate anointed one whom the Holy Spirit came upon so that he could do his work. And what is his work? Well, let's look at this passage specifically to see what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do as prophet. The first thing it says is that he has come to preach the good news to the poor. That was the office of prophet in the Old Testament. And the Lord Jesus has come to do the same thing. Now, the office of prophet in the Old Testament is frequently misunderstood. I fear, at least, that it is. It seems like many feel as though a prophet is, is simply a visionary who, who would close their eyes or something would happen to them, and they'd be able to see visions of the future. People think that that's primarily what a prophet is about. Well, that did happen to prophets, but it was not primarily their work. Or some people, on, on the other end, think a, a prophet is, is just some sort of cantankerous social misfit who doesn't sort of get along with everyone else, and so they're always talking at everyone and, and telling them all the things that they're doing bad and doing wrong. Well, that neither is the primary purpose of the prophet, although some prophets did do that as they brought the word of God to a sinful people. That's not the primary task of a prophet. The primary task of the prophet is to preach the good news. To bring the Word of God to the people of God. Specifically, in the context of God's covenant. That, that God has said to His people, You are My people. Therefore, walk before Me and be blameless. So the prophet would bring to the people the promises of God. Since you are my people, these are the things that I will do for you, that I will give for you, that I have already done for you. 
And also, since you are my people and I've given you all this, therefore walk before me. The promises of the covenant and the obligations of the covenant. That's what the prophets would come to God's people to preach. And they would also bring the blessings and the curses of the covenant. Saying to God's people, this is what you are to do, and this, if this is how you act, if you obey God and walk before Him, and serve Him, and love Him, and live by faith, then the Lord will bless you. But if you don't walk before Him in love, and serve Him, if you turn to other gods, if you turn away from Him, then you will be cursed, and terrible things will happen to you. That's what the prophet in the Old Testament was called to do. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ did also when He came. He came to bring the good news. He came to bring the Word of God to the people of God, to the world. The Word of God which is primarily good news. Which is totally good news to all who believe. To all who believe in the Christ. What else has He been sent to do? He has, been, he has sent me, He goes on to say, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. We mentioned that the name of Christ, just like the name Jesus, is connected to the defeat of our Savior over the power of sin. It's, this name Christ encompasses that. And sin affects everything in this world. It affects our lives. It affects everything. Well, the message that the Christ came to proclaim is the message of sin's defeat and the triumph of God's grace in Jesus Christ Himself. It's a message for the brokenhearted. Those humbled and hurt by sin and its consequences. It's a message for those captive, captive under sin, feeling like they cannot escape it. It's a message for those walking in darkness, not being able to see the light. That's the message that our Christ brings. Are you troubled and affected by sin, suffering under it? Well, God knows your sorrows, and Christ has come to comfort you with hope. He's given His Word. Are you held captive to, to sin, to idols? Can you not get away from your work? Can you not get away from your addiction? Can you not get away from your pleasures, your money? Well, Christ has come, the Christ has come, to give you His powerful Spirit, so that you can have release so that you can be let go. To draw you out of that sin and its clutches and to draw you into His powerful kingdom of freedom. Has the darkness of this world darkened your life? Does it cloud your view? Do you have a hard time seeing what's right and what's wrong? Which way to go and which way to not go? Well, the Christ proclaims the kingdom of light of truth, and of peace, where He is the Savior and Redeemer, and where He gives His Word in every situation as a light to our path. This is what the Christ has come to do for us. 
in this world, in this life in which we are affected by sin. What else has He come to do? He has come in verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, the freedom. He has already talked about that. The freedom for prisoners and captives, for those suffering under sin. Freedom in Christ because He has provided atonement. And also, notice, a day of vengeance. This message that the Christ brings cuts both ways, just as Christ Himself preached. It's a message of hope for those who are burdened by sin. It's a message of punishment and destruction for those who do not repent of theirs. He has come to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness. We come to our anointing instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The Christ, the one to whom Isaiah was pointing, has come. He has come. He is our Christ and He brings all these things foretold by the prophet about Him. The prophets of old proclaimed it's true, a future time of the fulfillment and fulfillment of God's salvation. But Jesus of Nazareth returned to His hometown to proclaim that the time has now come. The Christ is here. And it is here for all of us. The prophets anticipated the Messiah. Jesus proclaimed that He is the Messiah. He is the one, as we confess, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning what? Concerning our redemption, our salvation. He has revealed it, and He continues, as we'll see, to reveal it to us. Well, in the Old Testament, it wasn't only the prophets who received that that anointing of oil. It was also the priests. Specifically, it was the high priest who would receive the anointing with oil. In Leviticus 4, verse 3, the high priest is distinguished from all the other priests as being referred to the anointed priest. It was the high priest, the highest priest, who would receive the anointing of God. Well, the Lord Jesus is the anointed one. He is the great and the final high priest. And two aspects of his work of high priest could hardly be more profound for our lives as Christians. First, Jesus as the high priest not only makes sacrifice for us, as the high priest of the Old Testament did, bringing the sacrifices before God to make atonement for the sins of God's people, but Jesus as the high priest is the sacrifice for sins. The book of Hebrews explained that the high priest would would make sacrifices endlessly for the people. It says day after day, first for his own sins, then for, for the sins of God's people. But our great high priest, Jesus Christ, offered his own perfect body for our sins. It was a once for all sacrifice, not an animal for a human, but a human for a human, a life for a life. 
but one that had committed no sin and had fulfilled all righteousness. So that, as Hebrews 10 verse 18 says, where these sins have been forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is no more sacrifice for sins. Do you want to know how this affects your life? It affects your life in every way. Think of this. How much do we do that's still tainted by sin? How many of our desires are not purely love, not purely worship, not purely Godward? What would it be like if we had to constantly make sacrifice for our sins? What would your life look like if for every sin that you committed, you had to bring a sacrifice to God? I can tell you what your life would look like. It would be an endless offering of sacrifices to God. Your life would be consumed by this offering of sacrifices. It would be all-consuming. But the Scriptures declare, Christ is our sacrifice. He is our Christ. He is our sacrifice. And His work is complete. By faith in Him, all our sins are forgiven Him. We don't have to make sacrifice for our sins anymore. They are forgiven because He has died and paid the price. This means that rather than having to make sacrifices taking up our whole life, we are free. We are completely free from that burden that lived over the people of the Old Testament. We are free. We are free to live our life as a sacrifice for God. Not a life that's taken up by sacrifices, but we can now give our life as a sacrifice to God. All of it. Completely. 100%. Because Christ is our sacrifice. Because He has removed our sins for us. So now we can, instead of going to God for atonement, we can serve God out of thankfulness. We can work in our entire life for God's glory. Because Christ is our sacrifice. It affects our entire life in every way. That's one part of his work as high priest. There is another part that is just as effective for us. And that is that our high priest continually, perfectly, without any limitation, intercedes for us before the throne of God. The book of Hebrews makes it very clear that it is precisely because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, because He is the sacrifice for sins, that He can come before God and intercede for us. He is the perfect intercessor because He's, He is perfect. He has no sin. He can live perfectly with God, His Father. His atoning work complete, He could sit down at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Having paid for sin and being perfect in every way himself, there is nothing stopping his access to the throne. In the Old Testament, the high priest had to, on the Day of Atonement, before he could make intercession for God's people, he had to make a sacrifice for himself. He had to kill a bull. Because he was a sinner. So before he could make atonement, he had to make a sacrifice himself. But our Lord Jesus Christ does not need to make a sacrifice 
Because he's perfect. And so, he is constantly, always, and forever at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Because God is a loving and attentive Father, He loves to hear the intercessions of His perfect Son, the one who did all He had been commanded to do. Well, brothers and sisters, do you know that you are in Christ by faith? You are in Christ. You dwell with Him. You are with Him in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And so you have perfect access to God's throne through your Christ, through Jesus. So you can present all of your requests to God through Him. There is no moment in your life that you cannot come before the throne of God in heaven. And He will not receive you. He will always receive you. He will always hear you. He will always attend to your cry. Because you call on Him in the name of His beloved Son, the perfect Savior, the One who is always before Him. There's nothing stopping you. Even when you sin. In fact, it is precisely because you sin. It is precisely when you sin that you can call on God. Because the One who intercedes for you has paid for your sin. It is paid for. It is behind you. You have perfect access to the throne of God. So when you feel like you're walking in darkness, when you feel like you're captive under sin's power, when you feel ashamed because of what you've done, know that you have a God who always hears you when you cry out to to Him for help. Because you always have a Christ, a Messiah, who sits at His right hand, who intercedes for you before the throne of God in heaven. And He knows our struggle with sin. He knows how it affects us. He knows how it affects our loved ones. He knows how many are the needs that we constantly need to bring before Him because He knows our weakness. He has experienced it Himself. And so, just like the author of the book of Hebrews urges us, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence in Christ. Finally, we come to the last aspect of Christ's messiahship, his, his, his anointed status, and that is his kingship. And if, if prophet is, is present in the Old Testament and, and priest is present in the Old Testament, this idea is the, of the king as the anointed one is even more prevalent throughout the Old Testament. It has deep roots there. It's the primary reference. When we're talking about anointed in the Old Testament, most often it refers to kings. And the stories of the anointing of Saul and of David are famous. Remember how David was, was called in from the fields where he was shepherding? After all, his brother, his older and, and stronger brothers had been passed over by the Lord. David was called in from the field to present himself before the prophet Samuel so that he could be anointed by the prophet. And that symbolized that he was the king. 
1 Samuel 16.13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And the Psalms also speak about the kingship and the anointed status of the king. Psalm 2 speaks about this battle between the kings of the nations and God and his anointed king. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one, the king. And this passage refers beyond the kings of God's people, refers to the king of kings, the Lord Jesus, the Christ himself. Just as with the prophet and priest, Jesus is the great and final king, the one to whom all the kings of the Old Testament pointed and called for. What does it mean that our Lord Jesus is king? Well, it means that he rules. He governs. Have you ever noticed we have another election coming up, a municipal election? Have you ever noticed that government interferes with your life? Some people really chafe against that. They don't like all the interference of government in their life. Let me live my own life. Give me some freedom. Government interferes with our with our life, doesn't it? Federal government, provincial government, municipal government. They're always telling us different things, what to do, what not to do, making regulations for our lives, getting involved in our business, whether we think they should be involved with that or not. That's what governments do. What does it mean that Jesus governs, that Jesus is king, it means that he gets involved with your life. It means that he interferes with your life. It means that he cares what's going on in your life, and he directs what's going on in your life. He interferes with everything. He gets involved with all your business. He cares about your work. He cares about what you do and how you do it. He cares who your friends are. He cares what movie you're going to see. He's concerned about what's on your iPod. How much time you spend on Facebook. How you treat your parents. How you relate with men and women. Boys and girls. While he's doing that, he directs you. He wards off temptation. He provides safety for you. He shows you the way that you should go. He equips you with what you need. He interferes with everything in your life. But he is not a dictator or some tyrannical micromanager. No, he is the Christ of God. He's Jesus Christ. His rule is good. His kingdom is good. He is a good king. He is the king that we want to have rule and direct our lives. He does it, the Catechism teaches us, and God's Word teaches us, of course, through His Word and Spirit. He shows us what He wants from us. And He directs us by His Word. And because we're not powerful enough in ourselves to actually obey Him, He gives us His Spirit so that we can walk in His ways. Yes, He gets involved with every aspect of our lives. But He does it because He's good. 
Because he knows, considering the spiritual forces of evil that are at work in this world, against which we have to fight, considering the sinful desires of our own flesh, we're in way over our head. By ourselves, it's hopeless. We're fighting a hopeless cause. Christ is our King. He fights for us against sin. He protects us from Satan's power. He gives us what we need to fight against temptation. And He's King over all of us as church. He brings us together in this life. And so He cares what goes on in our church as well. And He guides us and He rules us and He leads us. And He works tirelessly to keep us united and holy and Catholic in the true sense of the word and true to Him and to His Word, guiding us by His Spirit. Christ is the great King. We are the beneficiaries of His rule. Christ is the great High Priest. We eternally benefit from His work on our behalf. Christ is the great Prophet who teaches us everything about our salvation. He is all of these things at once and together for all of God's people. When we confess Jesus as the Christ, we are confessing that our lives are in His hands and that our salvation is complete in every way. No corner of our life not affected. Nothing that we do that He doesn't help us, direct us, lead us on. Our salvation is complete, accomplished in the past, productive for the present, secure in the future. And so, we worship Him. We worship the Christ. We fall down before Him and we worship our Christ. Come before Him with loud songs of praise. For He is our Savior. He is our Christ our prophet, our priest, and our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Christ, the Messiah who has accomplished and who holds secure both now and forever the salvation of all your people. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Heavenly Father, would you unite us more and more with him and his work. Teach us continually through your word and spirit. Forgive us for our sins. Hear us as we call to you in every need, in every circumstance, with all kinds of prayers and requests and thanksgivings. And rule over us. Rule our lives that they might be lived for Your glory. We pray in His name, the name of our Messiah, Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.